Good morning, y'all. Wow, that was loud. Is that loud? Because it's really loud up here. No, you're perfect. All right, perfect. Hey, good to see you guys. It's good to be here on behalf of Cornerstone South LA. We just want to thank you for um, your love and your support. It means the world to us that we would be able to have you guys as kind of like just our family. Um, thanks for sending your Austin down. We loved having him for a week and chilling and um, and then, of course, Mr. Joey. And we just love when y'all come down. It's been three years you come down for the Love of Lake Camp, and it means so much to us as we seek to really just um, look for how we can just be intentional about loving our community in some really, really practical ways. And that's what we do is a four-week this year, four-week summer day camp for five hours a day, five days a week um, from 1230 to about 530. And so we just had a blast. Um, I'm exhausted from that. And um, every year I say we're never going to do it again. But I'm excited about this next year coming up, you know, and what God's going to have us do. It's great, I think, to run mad for the Lord, you know, and some crazy kind of, it's just crazy good. I just always, it's just, it's crazy. It's good, but it's crazy. And I just appreciate y'all joining in part of our craziness as we do our thing in Love LA. Yesterday, we had an amazing smoke time where we smoked some meats. Yesterday, I believe last time I said, Joe and I love to smoke things, and everyone was tripping out that I said that. And I mean, we smoke, you know, meats. And so yesterday, Joey and his family threw down some, um, you know, pork shoulder and some chicken, and it was just good. And so we do love that so much. But I want to focus our hearts um, John 2. And, um, and I want to just have us just look at this portion of scripture. It's a, a passage that we've all heard before. And, and Tony, your pastor, whom I love, just simply said, hey, I want you to do something gospelly. I didn't know what that meant, if you want me to sing a gospel song or something. But he said, do something gospelly. And I know it was a crack because I was black or something, like what he meant by that. But he just meant do something, you know, gospel-centered and that would focus our hearts on Christ and what he's done, a reminder of, of um of just the goodness and greatness of our God. So, yeah, let's just go ahead. I'm going to pray again, even though Captain just finished praying, but let's pray again. Father God, we come before you asking for your grace, allowing us to be able to hear and understand your truth, God, your grace that causes us to obviously be saved, God, but your grace that continues to keep us day in and day out. We pray, Lord, that you would just cause us to be aware of your presence, cause us to be aware of your spirit that is within us, that it would sharpen us and correct us, that it would cause us just to be more and more like what you called us to, to be, to be able to walk in love, to be able to just set our mind on things above. And Lord, we just pray for those of, of that do not know you that are here, that you would cause them to be able to see you and to understand your goodness and your greatness. They would understand the depths of your love. They would understand just their need for you, God, and that you would just draw them to yourself. We thank you for the fact that you first loved us, God, and enabled us to, to love you back. So, Lord, we just come before you now asking that you would speak through your word. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, John 2, chapter 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to meet to, to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone who serves the good wine first and the wine in, 
And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the disciples, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I, I love this portion of scripture. And I really pray that the Spirit of God will cause our hearts to just keep our, our minds focused, set upon him, that it would stir up the affections of our heart towards him, that it would cause us to just draw closer to him. Uh, it's an interesting kind of portion, I think, when I remember being as a kid, it was like water into wine. Like, why? It's so weird. I, I grew up in a Baptist church. Like, Christians don't drink wine. Why would Jesus do that? It's bad, you know? It just didn't make any sense to me at all, you know? And so I'm calling this sermon, The Movement Begins at a Dying Party. So hands down, I believe it is without question that Jesus is probably the great, he is the greatest person to affect history. That's just an absolute, right? And so if you look over in chapter one, you see this, you see Jesus begins to talk to mankind. He's communicating with us. So it says, and the word, um, and the word was God. And, um, and then so John 1 and 1 14, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen the, his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So my friends, the reality is that the sustainer and creator of the world is speaking to us. John one begins with him calling his disciples. They've been handpicked selected by God. And we see here, they, they are following him. If you look over, if you're taking notes, 137, verse 40, 43, and 46, they are, people are looking at Jesus. They're investigating Jesus. They're checking him out to see who is this cat? What is he really all about? Which is a reasonable thing. But in John 2, 11, something happens to these Lookers, Something happens to these investigators, these folks who are just kind of looking at Jesus. And it says this, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we see this is important. This portion of scripture is important because here, the first of Jesus' signs, they go from just following him and looking at him, investigating to believing in him. From looking at Jesus and putting their trust and their hope in the Savior. They went from being those bystanders and, and spectators to being on the team. It says his glory, his power, his love, his beauty, his awesomeness was on display in that first miracle, that sign. A sign is something what that you see with your physical eyes, but you understand, you acknowledge it with all that you are. It's seen with the natural eye, but perceived and understood with your spiritual eyes. This sign points away from the wine, and it points to who made the wine. So the signs here always cause us to look at who performs the sign. So all eyes are on Jesus. That's why the song, you know, Water He Turned Into Wine is such an amazing song, because he does the, the he makes the ordinary extraordinary here. And so we sing, you know, our God is greater, our God is stronger, and God, you are higher than any other. We're, we're captivated by that because the first sign is that it's his glory is on display for us. So we sing it in such a way we realize, well, look at how great our God is. So the question is, do you understand the sign? I don't really care whether you drink or you don't. That's not really important in this text. It doesn't even matter how he was invited, why he was invited. It doesn't matter um, who, who the person was, who these people are. I want to start with verse 9. It says, the servants knew. 
And I think it's important for us to look, look at just the heart of God. Luke, the first person that is going to be told about the birth is the smelly, you know, shepherds being around sheep all day. It's, it's not the, the important folks. Here you see that, man, look how God moves. I, wanted, I, was, I was nervous because I was in Delaware. I'll just side note, I was in Delaware about saying the stinky shepherds because I realized I'm I, maybe around a bunch of farmers. I didn't want to insult anybody because in L.A. I never have to worry about anything remotely like that. And so it's around people who are just some common folk, shepherds working with some stinky, smelly animals. And I think we look at those things and we just go, oh, like it's a big deal because we're so, you know, handpicked by God. We look so good. But the reality is he came, the sign, and the only ones who had the backstage pass was the servants. And I just think how amazing it is that's our God. It, he, he says, man, you know, I want you to see something. I want you to understand something. So they go ahead and, and the master of the ceremony declares what? That this is good. He sips it and he says, this wine is good. This is the good stuff. This is top shelf. Can you imagine the servants? How they must have been just tripping out. At the very beginning, Mary, the mother of Jesus, they have a little exchange and she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus tells them in verse 6, go ahead and fill the water jars. These jars were used for purification for what? Their ceremonial cleansing. This is practicing of being unclean and clean. This is the whole Mosaic law here, being kind of right before God. And John 6, 53 says this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Revelation seven fourteen deals with the fact that Jesus alone has made purification for all, once and for all, made purification for sins. It's not a ritual. Hebrews 9, 23 would deal how he, he died once and as the, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. He's not like those priests that goes day in and day out to deal with sins. He's died and all sins, past, present, future are now covered. So it talks about the filling of the jars to the brim, to the top. It, it, I mean, he says, top it off. This deals with the story. I, I hate, I cannot stand. I'm going to tell you a little secret of mine. I have an issue. It's a sad issue. I love sweet tea. I love sweet tea. Almost any kind of form you can give me sweet tea. Uh, uh, McDonald's sweet tea is glorious. Cane's, I was here. It's, it's okay. It's good. It's good. Um, Chick-fil-A, if you're down in the south, they make it right. And let me tell you, when I get that styrofoam cup, and I tell them, make sure you fill it with heavy ice because of the portion ratio that it needs to melt down. And it, it just does something that's just delicious. When they don't fill that thing to the top, <laughs> I feel gypped. I literally feel gypped. I look at it and I just pass it back. <laughs> I don't eat your food. I don't eat any kind of fast food really. But I'm like, hey, you fill that baby up for me, all right? Thank you. And this idea here that he says, fill it to the top. It's this idea that, hey, listen, I, don't, don't cut me short. Fill it to the top. I don't want there to be anything that can be snuck up in there. I just want the sweet tea to the top. Fill it up. So here Jesus says, fill it to the top. I don't want you to think you can put anything of your own in this thing. It's the, it's the emphasis on the greatness of the gift. Second Peter 1.3 says what? All that you need, he's given you for life and gone. It's all that you need. By his divine power. Second Timothy 3.6 says, all scripture is useful for... The, the man of God to be equipped for life and God. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are a totally new creation in Christ. 
Their jars are filled to the very top, so nothing can be added. The exchange of the ordinary to the extraordinary was all Jesus, was done by his works. And there the disciples and the servants had that backstage pass at the handiwork of God. Jesus was letting them know something better was coming along. I love how God doesn't work like the systems of this world. I'm never going to be invited to the White House. I'm just not that important. I'm not that impressive. I'm not in the know. You know, I'm sure some of you can understand. Some of you might be in the know, but I am not. They aren't the main players. They aren't the guests of honor for this wedding. This party isn't thrown for them. But in God's economy, poor, broken, uninvited, the last shall be first. Matthew 5, Matthew 19 would tell us those things. In Luke 14, we see Jesus telling us a story of the great feast where he is, he is just tired of hearing of these excuses. Excuses really that are pretty insulting. Excuses that um, are just lame. And he's like, okay, forget this. I want you to go ahead and go to the streets and I want you to, to beg, compel people to come into this great banquet. I want you to go to the outcasts and I want them to be able to enjoy this luxurious feast that literally would take days and days of prayer. The invitation would go out and they say, hey, we're going to have this big old party. We're preparing all this great food. And they would have said, okay, good, good. And then when it's time, they say, hey, we're about ready to start. And then they start with these lame excuses of why they don't want to be at this huge party. So Jesus says, forget them. Go ahead and just get the bystanders, all these people who no one really cares about, bring them in. So you see that Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman over in John 4, over in Mark 1, you see he's dealing with the lepers. In John 8, he's dealing with the adulterous woman. He meets those that are, are timid, Nicodemus, in the night to have a discussion about spiritual things. And Luke seven thirty four says this, he is a friend to tax collectors and sinners. I love old hymns where it says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our what? Sin and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. This idea that Jesus says, hey, come bring my, bring your sin to me. Let me deal with this. He deals with the lepers, those that people don't even want to touch. He deals with the, the woman caught in adultery and he, he loves her and cares for her. He deals with the woman, the Samaritan woman, the outcast who does her chores in the middle of the day so she would be around nobody. Everybody knows her business. And she goes back after encountering Jesus to say what? Let me tell you about the man who told me everything I've ever done. He must be the Messiah. And it says they believe not only in her report, but now because they have spent some time with him. Within this sign, with this miracle, our spiritual eyes take note of the abundance, the fullness, and the greatness of Christ's gift. Do you see his grace? Do you see his undeserved love as great? Do you see the fact that you cannot add one little thing to his grace? Not your Sunday attendance, your pleasant demeanor, your political correctness, your Sunday best... I'm talking about the reality of your checklist of, of Christianity, the things that we do and we don't do so we can kind of, ooh, God is now pleased with me. All the stuff we try to add to God's provision if we can have a form of righteousness. And we know Romans 3.10 says what? None of us are righteous, no, not one, right? But the fullness of God's provision is amazing. Not only is it in abundant, it's the good stuff. So why this? occasion to showcase his glory. Why the wine? I do know that the wine illustrates, it, it shows us the celebration. Without the wine, this party is dead. It's over. It's a done deal. The wine is used for the celebration of this couple. Who are they? Who cares? 
what relation to Jesus, once again, does not matter. They were just folks who were saved by Jesus from a really embarrassing situation. I can relate to that. The party continues and the enjoyment of life is had because Jesus delivers the good stuff, the wine. Isaiah 55, a few years ago, um, really gripped my heart. It was um, when I was leaving kind of uh, my suburban kind of ministry, um, leaving the youth pastorate and just wondering what would God have me to do next. And there's a couple of verses in, in Isaiah that really gripped me. And this is one of them. And it says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. One of my favorite passages, it describes yet another banquet because I do enjoy some food. Yet it, look at the terms here. It says, you are invited even though you are broke. Matthew 5, the, the Beatitudes, we know this. It showcases our blessed of the poor in spirit, our spiritual bankruptcy, that you have nothing. You cannot handle the moral situations of the day. When you pull out your credit card, it says, sorry, decline. You do not have the resources, the ability to deal with life's circumstances. It deals with the, it, the sense of the water for the soul. John 4 would tell us, the Samaritan woman says, give me this um, living water that I'll never thirst again. The first kind of person that comes to this table is a person who is thirsty, who cannot pay for what they need. So I love how John Piper, he says this. He says, These, this category is for people who to some degree are, are like, California right now, we're in a major drought. It's ugly. It's just gross. It's brown. It's just, it looks like the desert. It doesn't look at all like how Southern California should look. And it says, some of us, that's the condition of our hearts. It hasn't rained for a long time. There's been a lot of old hopes that have dried up. Dreams have waited and almost died. Dead end streets again and again. Empty, unfulfilled, dissatisfied, knowing there has to be something more to life. But now everything that looks good is out of your reach. There's no money, no strength, no motivation, but at least there's a longing, there's a thirst. And the Lord says, you just, you're just the candidate I'm after. Come everyone, and the Lord says, everyone who thirsts and has no money, no resources, no bargaining position, no track record, no power, no prestige, no, no pool. God is inviting you this morning for you to enjoy the banquet of salvation. The passage says to buy wine and milk. Milk is for the nourishment of your body. It's for those bones to be strengthened. But the wine is for the celebration of life. It's for the enjoyment of life. So this idea that you've had your fun now that you're, you know, now that you're a Christian, you've had your fun. Now it's time to live that boring, pathetic, you know, rule-regulated Christian life is so wrong. It's epically, tragically wrong for us to look at our Christian life as, oh, I have to leave all the good stuff behind now. That old way of life, that sin, that thing that lets us be dissatisfied. John 10 simply says that he's come to give you life and life more abundant, life to the fullest. That old life, the life apart from Jesus, will leave you dissatisfied and broke. Obviously, that is the story of the prodigal son who told his dad, really? Dad, I wish you were kind of dead. I want what's mine. And the father goes ahead and gives it to him and then he just is wild and out. And then he's found himself, wow, I have no friends, no place. And I'm, I'm sitting here just hoping to eat with the pigs. 
And it says he came to his senses and he said, man, my father's servants have it better than this because he sees that his father is good. And what his father has to offer is good. It's best. So I just need to go back home. So he makes his way home. And what happens? The father sees him at a distance because God is the one who pursues us. We love him because he what? First loved us. And so this idea of, 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 of wine, the exhilaration of life, it deals with the fact that we want to live and not die. We want to be strong and stable and not weak and wavering. But this is not all we need in life. No matter how stoic or unemotional or phlegmatic, laid back, poker face we want to be in our Christianity, there's a child inside every last one of us that wants to just kind of live some life. That's why we go to these, you know, I don't... I, this is for some of y'all. I don't do this anymore. But when you go to an amusement park, grown people just like, ah, and they're acting just crazy. Because it's just like, wow, I want to have some fun. I'm too old. I'm too big. It hurts me now. You go to a game and you see grown men just like, ah, going crazy. You're like, what in the world? There's just this child that says, I want to live life. So there's this need for us to shout and to sing and to dance and to play and to skip and to run and jump and laugh. So verse 1 says, God is willing to revive us from the heat of death valley with the miracle of his water. Make us strong and healthy and stable and give us endless, everlasting, just exhilaration for life with the miracle of his wine. So the question is, how is this accomplished? Is it by you mustering up more faith, praying a little bit harder, reading your Bible some more, fasting for Lent as some act of penance or something? Now, nothing is wrong with fasting and praying and reading your Bible. Those are great spiritual disciplines, things that will help us understand the heart of God more and more. But that's not how our life is made complete or how it's accomplished. We put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's in the very beginning of the text when Jesus is talking to the woman, his, his mother, and he deals with, hey, woman, what does this have to do with me? Which sounds a little like, whoa, what, what's happening here, Jesus? Like, why you just lay her out like that? But he's saying, I want you to understand something here. Our relationship as mom and son has nothing to do with this spiritual dichotomy that you're about ready to see that goes down here. You being my mom isn't going to give you a, a better standing when it comes to, you know, how God moves. I only do what the Father, my Father in heaven tells me to do. Now, that should excite some of you because some of you had some horrible parents. <laughs> some of you had some great parents who loved the Lord, but some of you come from families that are so messed up. And some of you, your parents, they ain't very important people. And I love the fact that God is telling us how we can have a relationship with him, and it's saying, it's saying because of faith and not family. So Ephesians 2, you know the verse, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is such amazing news for us. It doesn't matter what family line you come from, what, how ungodly your parents are. It deals with the fact that if you want to be a friend of God, then you need to be a person who has faith in him. Students, I want to tell you, you don't want to ride the coattails of your parents' faith you don't want to just have your mama's faith hoping that's going to get you to heaven. You don't want to kind of ride on your daddy's grace as if, you know, he's going to be able to pay a debt for you because he cannot. You need to put your faith in what Christ has done upon that cross. 
you need to see your sin as your sin, that it's, you're the reason that you're going to you know, have to pay a pretty heavy price, that you're the reason that the wrath of God, you are that person. And the reality is you need to deal with your sin just like every single grown folk must do the same thing. If you don't, if you try to live this life, if you try to live this party without Jesus, you will be epically, tragically, eternally disappointed. So then after this rather abrupt statement, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. The hour is always dealing with a reference to his death, right? You have John 12, 23, John 13, 1, and 17, 1. But 13, 1 says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' hour was the hour of his death when the Lamb of God who would, who would die to take away the sins of the world, which is what over in John 1, 28, when the first disciples started to, to turn their eyes to Jesus, when John the, um, John the Baptist says, hey, look, the Lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. And this Lamb would come for the ultimate purification. In Revelation, Jesus, he's the slain Lamb who is now worthy to open up the scrolls. Everyone is weeping because this is a sad day. Sins are just, and they're like, no one can open up the scroll. And in comes the lame lamb, the slain lamb, the lame lamb, the slain lamb, whose death has appeased and satisfied the wrath of God. So 1 John 1, 7 says this, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. It cleanses us from all sin. This is where you need to understand with your spiritual eyes why this story begins to take that turn, right? In John 2, 6, he says this, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification for cleansing, each holding 20 and 30 gallons. It's the same Greek word, our dealing with the death, our purification. His death equals life and abundant for us. So as Jesus is sitting there like any guest does, looking at his, maybe his future wedding, at um, when his the bride, the church, he would, he would have this. He's contemplating this possibly. You see, back in the day, it is customary for the groom to provide the wine for the celebration of his wedding. It's an embarrassment, illegal ramifications if you don't have enough wine for the enjoyment of this feast on your wedding day as the, as the bride. So it is with us that there's a spiritual legal ramifications if we are not cleansed, purified by faith in the death and burial of Jesus Christ. So it's perfect that Christ begins his movement at a wedding because he's our bridegroom, right? You are spiritual bankrupt and you cannot meet the legal ramification of God's wrath. All of us have tried to bring our own joy and life to the party without Christ. And we feel that we, we are enough, but the Bible tells us there's no possible way that we will be able to be enough. We have all sinned against the glory of God. We have all failed to live up to his standard. We have all missed that mark. We do not and cannot measure up to his amazing, perfect, holy standard. So he is living, literally giving us an acted out parable. This is the gospel displayed for us. This is the good news. The one who is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease, is John 3, 29. 
So the question, are you decreasing that he might increase? In this day and age where we are told that we are, you know, be all that you can be, this whole, like, you're enough. The Bible says it's really the opposite of us. We must, we must decrease. We must realize we cannot add anything to this pool when it comes to having life in Christ. All we can do is rest in what Christ has done. And we trust in his grace, allowing him to fill us so people can say, look, this is the good life. They know our past. They know our mess. And they say, wow, look at this person. Look how God has done something in this person. So even at this wedding, he is the all-providing, all-sufficient, never fails to, never really fails to give us what we need. This wonderful Groom didn't even know that he was getting ready to be just really in some bad shape here. And Jesus steps in and just saves the day. And I love that for while we were at sin is what Christ died for us. So this idea that we need to clean ourselves up. No, you just come as you are with all your mess and you allow Jesus to deal with you. And Jesus then does it in such an amazing way. Revelation 19, 7 says this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. One of my favorite songs when I was um, 17 was Crystal Lewis. And it goes, people get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. People get ready. Jesus is coming and take his own. And it was this idea that, man, are we ready are we ready to meet our Savior face to face? Are we ready for him to say, hey, my son, my child, my daughter, come? Or will we see a devastating thing where he's like, I do not know you depart from you work of iniquity. You have not tasted of my goodness. You have not allowed me to be your portion. You have not allowed me to be the wine, the celebration of life. You have enjoyed life wholly apart from me. So this is one of those texts that you have, to, you have to understand with your spiritual eyes. You have to see that the water turned into wine is really meant to be understood with, oh, God wants to do the extraordinary with my ordinary life. I'm not special. There's nothing about me that's amazing. I'm a sinner who desperately needs God. And I love the fact that I have God. I love the fact that God has stepped into eternity and says, I've made a way for you, oh, precious church kid. And I'm going to love you in spite of all that Christianity do's and don'ts you want to do. I'm going to love you in spite of all your religiosity. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to help you understand how much you need me. And so the age of 14, God saved me on a missions trip. And I realized how much I needed a Savior. And I realized how my life wasn't complete because I wasn't resting and trusting in him. How I was still striving to do things my own way. How I really wasn't rejoicing in what God has done because he didn't do anything for me. I had done it. So I was tired and it was frustrating and it was just annoying. And church people can be so, ugh. And I was just tired of everyone always looking at me. I knew they were always looking at me. And I had to live up to that standard. And it was just annoying. And God steps in. And he says, are you ready? Are you ready to allow me to be your God? 
Are you ready to allow me to give you what you need for this life? Are you ready to enjoy life the way I've called you to enjoy life on my terms and not your own? So Cornerstone Church, as the bride of Christ, hasn't he done all that he needs to do for you? Are you rejoicing? Are you ready? We know the bridegroom is coming back and he is coming for his own. And when he comes back, we get to be with our Savior face to face. And if we do not enjoy him now, why would we enjoy him for eternity? If we don't see him as the good stuff, what will heaven be like for us? I pray that you will see your life and that you would see that if you know Christ, then you are called to exalt, rejoice, to have a party with him. That there should be an excitement in your heart when you want to talk about how great your God is. There's something when I talk about sweet tea. Tony told me when I talk about food, there's a glimmer in my eye. It's true. Now, I pray that when I talk about Jesus, there's something else that happens that people see, oh, he loves that Jesus. You want me to talk about my wife and you will tell that I love my wife. Because she is good for me. But there's something about Jesus that I go, wow, he is the ultimate good for my life. Through the bad and through the sad times of my life, he's been good. Through those times where he's amazing, I realize, well, that's just the kindness of God that's given me that amazing whatever it is that I'm enjoying at the moment. And so, people, I would just tell you, people get ready. Jesus is coming Soon we'll be going home. People get ready. Jesus is coming. The take from this world is on. Amen.